We're continuing on in our We Believe series, which is a series that's talking through some of the, the key theologies, the key beliefs we have about God, His Son Christ and His Holy Spirit, and how they shape our thoughts, our deeds, our lives, and our actions. And so today we're continuing on in this, this next section of this passage of Scripture in John chapter 14. And we, we're looking at it, just in case you don't know, in three sections. We'll get to the, the part about the Father and Jesus and His Son next week. But we're going to look at the middle section of it this morning, all of which are talking about belief. And so last week, just a very quick refresher, this message is online, so I won't spend a lot of time here today, but I just want to bridge the gap of where we were and where we're going. Last week, we firmly established that everyone in the world believes in something, and we looked at what is considered to be the most sort of antithetical belief in the world, atheism. We looked at even how atheists have a belief structure. It just tends to be in self, uh, in their ability to sort of judge the events of the world and determine whether or not they are true. So belief resides in every person's heart. It's just a matter of whether or not they understand what it is that they actually believe in or what the object of their faith is being placed in. And the key to applying this in the Christian life, at least what we tried to point out last week, is that whether we knowingly or at times unknowingly have arrived at a place in our lives where we begin to trust in something else that isn't Jesus, hoping that it will satisfy our souls in only a way that Jesus can, it's super important that we actually know that and we have sort of a discerning heart to sense when it is that we stray from the very foundational truths that we affirm in our faith. One of the biggest being that we believe in Jesus and who he is, what he says he has done, that he's the son of God, that he's come to the world to redeem us, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that we find our ultimate measure of hope and trust and joy in him. That's one of the foundational teachings of the Christian faith. It's the thing that I'm encouraging you most over this series to believe in most deeply. And so with that in mind, today we're going to look at a key teaching we derive from Jesus in John 14 as he addresses a group of Galileans. This is a local people group in his part of the world in the first century. And the subject of what we're talking about today is that this is a group of people who profess a faith in Jesus. But according to John, as he records Jesus' actions, we see that it's really a, a questionable faith, meaning it's not the type of faith we talked about last week, a genuine trust or belief or affirmation in someone, in this case, Jesus. And it's a really interesting section of Scripture. It's an interesting interaction because it teaches us some key truths about the kinds of faith and belief that Jesus desires from us and the type of faith and belief that will keep us from really experiencing the fullness of God's grace in Jesus. There's sort of a, a warning here, meaning we're going to observe a type of faith that, that sort of proclaims itself as faith but really isn't faith at all. This leads me to the next we believe truth that I want to talk about this morning. And I've promised each week we'll look at one. This idea that we're talking about today is deeply connected to the idea that every person in the world has faith in something. Now with that in mind, we believe Jesus wants every person to examine what they have placed their faith in. And this sort of makes sense. The, the sequence of the way I'm teaching this should sort of connect. If we've talked about the foundational idea that everybody has faith in something, then it makes great sense, whether you're in Jesus or not, that you would know what that faith is, what that ultimate sort of trust is, because that ultimate trust in something or someone is what defines your steps in life. It's sort of the true north that, that calls you into a certain direction of life, and no human in their right mind would say that we want to sort of aimlessly wander into the future. We want to sort of be thinking about that. Since we only get a certain amount of time on this earth, in Scripture we're told to sort of make the most of these days. And so when it comes to the Christian faith, I want us to think about our lives in Christ and what it is that we place our faith in. John 4, 43 through 45 says this. 
want to reread the main section of teaching we're going to look at today. It was read in its entirety a few moments ago, but here's what we're going to zero in on. After the two days, he left for Galilee, speaking of Jesus. And we have in quotes here, now Jesus himself had pointed out that the pro- that prophets have no honor in their own country. What's happening here is John is calling to our attention something that Jesus has already said. It's a pivotal truth, a pivotal statement that sort of frames what we're looking at this morning. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that prophets have no honor in their own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, and they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So we've got this sort of interesting passage here where the ministry of Jesus is starting to be known in the ancient world. It's spreading sort of from city to city. The word of what he's doing precedes him. And right now, the, 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 Jesus sort of zeroes in on this place called Galilee and this people group called Galileans. And this language John uses is steeped in miracles. In other words, people have heard about what Jesus is doing. And so the first type of faith we read about in this passage is the faith of the Galileans. And the way John describes this whole faith event to us is very interesting. You know, the Bible is a book of literature, meaning certain books are written in certain ways. This is a gospel, meaning it's telling stories about who Jesus is and what he has done. And if you read it as such, you realize there are literary clues embedded in this narrative that are trying to point the way for where we're going. Missing the clue we're going to talk about now means that we've missed the faith truth Jesus wants us to hold on to here. And so in verses 44 through 45, John points out a very stark contradiction between how Jesus says his countrymen, Galileans are his countrymen, should respond to him and how they actually did respond to him. In one breath, we hear that Jesus said, prophets have no honor in their own country. In other words, they're they're not respected in their own land. And you've probably heard this. This is a biblical saying that has a pretty broad colloquial effect in our culture. It's sort of a, a slang statement that is used regularly to talk about somebody not having any credibility where they are. And so in one breath, we have Jesus saying this, prophets have no honor in their own country, yet Jesus receives this incredibly warm welcome from his Galilean countrymen. The idea is that he shouldn't have any honor here, but everybody loves him. It's sort of like Palm Sunday. They waved sort of palms before Jesus to celebrate him as king, and then within a week's time, they put him on the cross. Something here is not right. And so on the surface level, it appears these crowds love Jesus, but deep down, something about the Galilean welcome isn't right. And Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what this is. His discernment of the kind of faith that that they have is actually what we're talking about today. And I want to explain. Earlier in in his gospel, John, and again here, tells us that there are a lot of people at this point that are starting to believe in Jesus. They're typically referred to as the crowds or or the masses. And there's nothing wrong with with crowds or masses, but in John's gospel, this is sort of a term that's describing a, a certain type of demographic, you might say, that's emerging. So there are these crowds, these masses, who are regularly seeing Jesus perform these amazing miracles just at the Passover festival. This is fresh in their minds. They've seen this or heard about this. And so his wording here is a clue telling us that the Galileans, they're part of these crowds that he's talked about in in prior sections of the, the Gospel of John. And I want to read just one section of that to you. John 2, 23 through 24. This will be behind me. This is sort of the the precursor. This is what has already happened that John is talking about here. Here in John 2, we read this. Now, while Jesus, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. There's this key connection between seeing signs, seeing wonders, seeing miracles, and then believing. But, key word in verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the hearts of all people. 
So there is a belief, but it's not a genuine belief, and Jesus knows that. It isn't that Jesus doesn't want to entrust himself to us. You know, he goes to the cross for our sins. He goes to the cross so that we can know him deeply and be known by him. Jesus is not withholding himself from us. What's happening here is there is a, a faulty motive that people are prescribing to that are actually, it's actually influencing Jesus' view of them. It's a fake faith. And what we learn in these crowds, these verses, is that there's a type of faith that, really there are several types of faith, that can look valid but really are not valid. We're only going to look at one today. And we can go so far as to say that the type of faith we're discussing this morning is a treacherous kind of faith because it sort of looks good on the outside but actually is very problematic. Jesus points it out directly. According to him, it's not a good faith. And so you see the, the issue we're dealing with here is you have people, crowds, masses, that are believing in the name of Jesus because of what they think he can do for them. They have seen that he can do anything, really, at this point, that he can perform miracles, that he can sort of bridge the gap between anything that's going on in life. He can take away pain. He can deal with suffering. All of the things we sort of cry out for as humans, Jesus has the ability, because he is fully God and fully man, to deal with this stuff. And people see this and they know this. In fact, this is what, we won't talk about this today, but the, the drive of the father who's trying to bring his, his hurt son, his sick son to Jesus, is because he knows Jesus can heal the ill. So everybody, the backdrop of this is seeing Jesus do these pretty profound things. And they see it in Jerusalem. And the problem here is that they know what he can do for them. And they love that actually more than they love Jesus himself. It's not that they actually love Jesus. It's that they love what they think Jesus can do for them. And Jesus is aware of this. It's a completely utilitarian relationship. It would be like, let's say you are dating somebody or you are married to somebody or you, are, you have children that are dating somebody. Whatever relationship sort of context you're in, think about this. You would never want to be treated like this. You would never want somebody to, to not actually care about you, but care about what you can do for them. Let's just say you were you know, crazy affluent, like mega rich, and everybody in your life just loved you because they thought they could get money from you. That would be an incredibly terrible way to be in relationship with people. And that's the parallel that's going on here. Jesus is not passing out $100 bills, but he is able to do things in the lives of people that are worth much more than $100 bills. And they see this, and they know this. And the reason this is common and a treacherous form of faith is because it's a faith transaction steeped in a trading of services, not a genuine love for the Son of God. It doesn't understand grace at all, and it certainly cannot give grace. If this is the kind of way you, you see Jesus, like, I get something from him, therefore I do something for him, you will never know what grace is from Christ, and you will never be able to show it to other people. I say regularly here that the, the, a great definition of grace is sort of disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others. It's recognizing that you might pour yourself out for the sake of other people and not get anything out of that, except for the well-deserved affirmation of your God in heaven. There is no dollar-for-dollar dollar transaction here, but that's what people want. In short, they want to trade their allegiance to God. They want to profess their faith in God in order to have a God on demand, a miracle worker at their disposal who can do things for their benefit. And at this point, it's pretty fair to say there's enough of a trajectory of this type of persona in the New Testament that we know that they really only care about their benefit, not God's. And that's a problem. Jesus came to build God's kingdom, not ours. And so these crowds teach us if your faith is based on what you think God will do for you, it's not really faith. And let me just sort of share a caveat here. I'm not saying we shouldn't look to God and expect him to work in our lives. We shouldn't bring our deepest burdens, our woes, our, con our concerns, our deepest joys and celebrations. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring these things to God. 
I'm saying if you think that God sits on his throne in heaven simply to, to accomplish stuff in your life, if you think that we look at God or God sees us as sort of trading you know, deeds for his love, then what happens is that's actually not faith. That's an incredibly abusive form of faith. And that's what we see here. So let me give you an example of this, a couple. Uh, I shared in a similar text many, many, many years ago, and I always say this, you, I'm sure you hang on every word of my sermon and have them all memorized. I shared what is one of the most obvious examples of this in, a, in, a modern day, uh, in our modern day culture. And it took place after a pretty intense NFL game that wound up going into an overtime. And in case you don't know the NFL, overtime is, you know, like you got to win or you lose. The game was tied and went into a, another quarter. So overtime takes place. And during this overtime, a really well-known wide receiver, I'll leave him nameless, dropped what everybody considered to be like an incredibly easy game-winning pass. It was the kind of thing that nobody should have dropped. Yet he did. And everyone, including the wide receiver, it was clear that physically astounded by this. Everybody was sort of like, you know, holding their hair because they couldn't believe he had thrown or blown such an easy play. So the obvious issue here is dropping the ball means the team lost the game. And that was bad enough. The announcers were uh, describing it. It was in the papers. People were talking about the loss. That's already a challenge. But what happened after the loss is what I want to focus on here this morning. So after the loss, the wide receiver was naturally frustrated. If you've ever played a sport or been engaged in athletics, we've all had moments like this where something should have happened and it didn't, and you're sort of devastated in that moment, and that's what happened here. And so immediately, the wide receiver did what we all do in our modern life now when things are really difficult and challenging. We take the, the, the time and the energy and the emotional effort to pick up our phones and tweet it to the world, because, you know, that is the most encouraging place you can bring your problems to. So the Twitter piranhas saw this. Here's what he posted in, in this sort of proclamation to culture and more directly to God. It's behind me. He posted this on his Twitter account. He said this, I praise you 24-7 with like 10 exclamation points. Speaking to God, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this. I'll never forget this, ever. And here's my favorite part. Thanks, though. Right, just like that, right? So, so this guy is in a rage because of this. And what's interesting about this is in the Twitter world, what happens is everybody and their grandmother started making comments about this. It, you know, I disdain Twitter, just to be pretty frank with you. But I, not that I hate the technology. I just think it's like throwing your life. It's like marinating yourself in teriyaki and throwing it into a, pa a pack of wolves. That's what Twitter is as far as I'm, I'm concerned, concerned. It's just uh, it is what it is. I don't know if I'm right or getting old. Maybe it's a combination of both there. But that's just how I feel. All right. So. So everybody's tearing him apart. And it's beyond the ball drop now. They're not even talking about the game anymore. What's happening here is people are sort of frustrating because the, the general vibe of that tweet seems to say that it's God's fault that he dropped the ball. Right? Naturally, people took it that way, even though on multiple occasions he said that he didn't mean it that way. And it, you can sort of see why they took it that way. If you read this sort of for what it says, it seems to say, God, because I praise you 24-7, you're supposed to make me catch footballs. That's what that tweet says, right? And, you know, we live in Florida, so God makes all your dreams come true, like Disney. That's what he does. Whatever we do for him, he should sort of, in a dollar-for-dollar -dollar way, do everything we expect from him. That's, that example is a really accurate modern take on the ancient faith issue that's being addressed here. And we all have moments like this in our lives. I, I use this not to point something out as much as I do to level the playing ground, to say just, this is addressed in the New Testament because it's a very real issue we can all suffer from. Jesus is pointing out a learning issue here with the Galileans. And here's why this is important, knowing this. Believing like this will cause you and I to miss out on who God really is. 
Because at the end of the day, you and I will wind up loving the signs and the wonders of God. In our modern world, what you think God can do for you, or what I think God could do for me, much more than we actually love the God of the sign and the wonder. See the problem there? The sign and the wonder is what people fell in love with. And they totally missed the Jesus behind the sign and the wonder. And so, logically speaking, if you believe this way, when God doesn't act the way you think he should, in this case, like helping you catch a football, you stop loving him, or you blame him, or your faith is challenged, or you have significant emotional issues, you might become depressed, you, you start to sort of find your identity in this. You get to the place where you think that this isn't happening in my life, therefore it must mean God does not care for me, or God does not love me, because my suffering now is great, or things didn't turn out the way that I thought they should. This is all built on an incredibly faulty foundation especially when you understand the the sort of altruistic love God has for the world through his son Jesus. And so please hear me when I say this. This is something we can all suffer from at times. This is a form of belief we as believers can be highly susceptible to because we live in a world that reinforces this idea. The idea that when you put something into life, you should always get something out of life, right? You know, work hard, persevere, put 110% in, and you'll get all your dreams. Let me tell you something. When I was in my, like, 20s, I played a ton of basketball, but I could never play in the NBA. It doesn't matter how hard that I, I practiced or how often I played. Like, I'm five foot ten. if the light hits me just right. There is, there is nothing I can do to play in the NBA. Like, I'm probably not even skilled enough to run water to those guys. It doesn't always work that way. I can give 150%, but it just isn't going to happen. And so I do think we live in a world where I'm not trying to, you know, crush your dreams. Please don't hear me say that. I'm just trying to say this dollar for dollar equation is not natural in the world. It doesn't always come, come across this way or work out this way. And when we apply this to faith, man, we're going to have a problem. This is a really big issue with faith. Because what will happen here is we will recognize or start to believe that the most important thing we can get from God is something from God. And in doing so, we'll miss the most important thing God actually gives us, a meaningful relationship with him through his son, Jesus. It's like a bait and switch, and it's not a good one. And so you see, we really short sell true faith when we miss out on the beautiful truth that the best gift God could ever have given us is his son. Anything on top of that is great. But to miss that foundation of our faith is really a problem. It's rooted in in us missing the idea that God has offered us this amazing opportunity to deeply know and be known by Jesus. And if we don't recognize that that is the, the sort of core essence of all faith, our trust is in that, that Jesus is God and loves us deeply, then what happens is we'll, we'll miss the point of the Christian faith in its entirety. And the New Testament is sort of packed with these stories of people really getting Jesus and people not getting him at all. And at the center of all this is faith, what they do or do not trust in, what they do or do not believe in, what they do or do not affirm. Their belief here has shaped a, a type of Christianity that is a problem. And that's exactly what happens in this tweet and with the Galilean crowd. The reason both John and Jesus tell us that Jesus didn't fully trust the welcome of his countrymen is because Jesus knew they weren't really welcoming him. They were welcoming what they thought he was going to do for them. They had heard of the miracles he had done in Jerusalem and and the other things he had been doing in his ministry to this point, and they believed that his arrival meant he was just going to do the same stuff for them. Now, I want to sort of, I want you to think of this caution like this. This is an old illustration that I modified heavily from a, a really solid author named Menti Wright. Think of this caution. Jesus gives us a, a, a loving example, okay, of his, of his care for us. The whole New Testament teaches us this. So imagine this idea, this Jesus we read about in the scripture, and I want you to think about the problem that we're seeing here through this story. 
Imagine uh, there's an incredibly neat city. We live in Florida, and, and we have a lot of good cities around us, but I'd say the one that is probably the most historical next to us. Anybody take a guess at this? What's the one you think I'm going to mention here? St. Augustine, right? I mean, that's about an hour, 15 minutes north of us. That, without question, is, you know, a pretty profound city. It's an incredibly neat place, incredible amount of scenery, uh, lots of history and beauty. Cities like that are iconic, and, and they're known for being sort of treasures. Now, I want you to think about this. Maybe you're not here long enough in Florida. Think about a city in your hometown that is really historic and valuable. Just, you know, contextualize this. Imagine the residents of, of St. Augustine, this city, and their city council are keenly aware of the fact that their city is a hidden treasure. And they want other people to see it, too. So the residents hire a city planner to help them figure out how to make the city known to the people who have yet to hear about it. They know they have something valuable, and they want the world to know. And so they bring a woman in. She comes in. She does this assessment of the city, city sort of planner. And she says, listen, there are lots of things we can do here to make the name of your city known. But the most natural step, the most obvious, perhaps the easiest one, is to just put signs around this place. She says, I drove all over and couldn't even find it. And I thought maybe if there were some signs, mileage markers, just something that pointed the direction, it would have been easier for me to find it. So therefore, we can say the first step we should take is to start putting signs around this place so people will know how to find these hidden sites and treasures of your city. So she goes on to say, this place it needs direction. And of course, because of the magnitude of the city, no ordinary sign or signs are going to do. She says, you need signs that reflect the majesty of the city itself. So the residents agree, and they say, we're going to start building signs. And they build very fine signs, elaborate signs, beautiful signs, the kinds of signs that you look at sort of in, in awe and wonder. They're really well made, and they are beautiful. And they put them up everywhere. And they immediately notice, after they're up for a couple of weeks, that people are beginning to amass around the signs. Anywhere there's a sign, there's a group of people standing there looking at it. And that's significant. But something sort of unexpected happens. They have another meeting, and they say everybody's at the signs, but nobody's actually walking into the city. What's going on? So they bring the city planner back, and she conducts another study to figure out what's going on. She interviews the crowds spends time observing the people, researching. And her research reveals something incredibly ironic, something deeply ironic, that all of the people that had lined up to look at the signs pointing the way to the city, they were so enamored by the signs that nobody actually entered the city to see the real treasure the signs were meant to lead them to. The actual beauty of the city. The sign, which was a directional arrow, confused them, and they just put a period at the end of the sign and stood there. They missed the point entirely of what the sign was meant to lead them to. The city. And that analogy is literally what is happening here in this passage of Scripture with the people. And it's sort of the problem we have whenever we have a false faith in our life. God wants us to have something more meaningful, a more robust understanding, a more robust sort of you know, desire to know and be known by Jesus. And oftentimes, we settle for less. In this case, people chose less. What we learn here is that the Galileans loved Jesus' signs and wonders more than they loved the treasure the signs were supposed to reveal. Jesus. That is the treasure. He is the treasure of Christianity. And so you see, like the city, they missed it. In fact, at this point in the Gospel of John, it's fair to say this is being brought up because it's such a common impediment people have is when they're trying to find Jesus or have a faith in him. Every time it causes people to miss Jesus. And I want to say that if we practice this, it will cause us to miss him too. We won't ever get to the city. We'll just look at the sign. Now, I'll wrap up like this. I want to leave you with a quote from another uh, profound, since we're doing a series on theology, we'll have a few more quotes here. But this is an author named Leslie Newbegin, and he's a, a unique author because not only was he a, an English scholar, he was also a British missionary to India. And he authored several influential works that address what we believe about the church's role in mission. And what I love about him 
and the types of men and women like this is that they were deeply entrenched in the work of God as they were writing about it. They weren't just sort of writing about this from the angle of theory, although that's not a bad thing. They were writing about it having actually done it. So we're talking about finding Christ and we're hearing it from a, a missionary who lived his life in India trying to help people see Jesus. And he describes this faith event that we're reading about in chapter 4 like this. We'll read it and then discuss it and then move to the table. He says, and I'm sort of using a collection of his, his writings here, a belief which requires signs and wonders is one which lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. In other words, what he's saying here is we start to tell God what he needs to be in order for us to believe he is who he says he is. That's a problem. That's what's happening here. And he goes on to say, you know, faith like that, it is thus guilty of putting the constructions of the human imagination. And I love this sentence or this part of the sentence. Often a very pious imagination in the place of God. He's saying as people, we can be very creative and we can actually look to God and create all these additional hoops we demand him to jump through based on our preferences and opinions and traditions and life circumstances. Our imaginations are sort of endless when it comes to this. And he goes on to say, this kind of belief is not a response to God as he actually reveals himself. For God's revelation may be very different than our predetermined view of what God must be and do. And then I'll wrap up here. He says, the demand for God to prove himself to us through signs and by signs, please hear me, I'm not talking about you going out and thinking, you know, you need to see a miracle to believe in Jesus. Whether it's you want him to change a circumstance, or you want him to take a feeling away, or you want him to bring something into your life, whatever the sign is, the demand for God to prove himself to us through signs makes the one who demands the sign sovereign over God because he has himself determined the tests by which God must prove himself to us. This is the atheist issue we talked about last week. The person in the atheist camp says, I am now God, and if I'm ever going to get to the place where I think God is real, you must bend to my terms. This is the same thing. Newbegin is trying to show us that believing like this means we've chosen to see our own truth, not God's truth, as the authoritative voice that guides our lives. And when we elevate our voice like this, when we make our voice louder than God's like this, a person naturally expects God to be the kind of God they want or the kind of God that they believe he should be. And I say this a lot, but it's true. That God often looks like us because that's an easy God to follow. It, re it really is. When we cast God in our own image, you know, you probably don't disagree with yourself much. You're kind of on your own team, and that works out well. But sometimes in following God, he challenges the very core being of who we are. He makes us think about things that, that were never on our minds. He causes us to, to care for people we might not have ever thought about caring about. He is constantly making us like Jesus, and that is a beautiful and challenging thing at times. If we miss this, what happens is we will miss God as he actually is. And consequently, you'll demand God to prove himself to you on your terms, not his. And as a result, what matters most to you and I is what we demand from God to believe him or follow him, or trust in him more deeply. And I'll give you just a handful of brief examples here. So if you're a person who is really inclined towards emotional experience, in this room we would say you are led by your heart. There's nothing wrong with that. The heart is meant to be balanced with the mind and your hands, obviously. Here, if emotional experience is how you see the world, then you'll want God to do sensational things in your life before you believe in him or follow him. And if he doesn't do that, well, then you'll question whether or not he's real. 
Or maybe if he does do those things for a season, you'll have faith. If you're a person who is uh, really wired towards logic, this is sort of my bend, then you'll want God to work in a way that makes sense to you. Like when I write my little roadmap and it doesn't fit in it, I have questions. Questions aren't wrong, but if I really believe God is who he says he is, then I have to make a space for God to work in ways that exceed my imagination here. If he doesn't, we'll question him, maybe even walk away from him. If you're a mystic, hyper-spiritual, that's really big today. Uh, what will happen here is you want God to do some hyper-spiritual stuff for you, or else you, you won't believe. Like if he doesn't write your name in the clouds while you're eating a Red Robin, you might think God isn't real. Maybe he does write your name in the clouds. Maybe he doesn't. God is still God regardless of that. Or if social justice is your thing, you'll deny God when you see what you think are unjust situations in the world. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but if we start to leverage them as, as signs that God has to prove himself through, that can lead us to a very challenging place. And the greatest example we have of this, it's the Pharisees. They are perhaps the greatest example of this type of faith and what it produces. They regularly demand Jesus prove himself to them on their own terms. So much so, we just read like Jesus is sort of in process, meaning after two days, he's in Galilee. He just did a bunch of stuff. And what happened here is, I want you to think about this. He just, a couple of chapters prior, caused a blind man to see in front of the eyes of this group of people. But it still was not enough for them to believe. I mean, I'm not sure, like, what else. If somebody said, give me 100 bucks, I'll make this guy that's blind see, I'll give him 100 bucks. I would do that. We would just say, like, that's amazing and pretty profound. We would probably believe something significant about that. But what happened is, in this story, that's not what happened. The blind man was caused to see and people still questioned who Jesus was. Why is this? Why is it that with this faith structure, God can even prove himself in the way we demand, and we still won't believe or trust? Because they valued their own imagination of who they thought God should be more than, God, more than who God actually is. That's a never-ending well. And if you start laying those things before God, what the Old Testament calls fleecing, then what will happen is, is you'll just throw another fleece there. And the first time it sort of deviates the, the track, the first time God moves in a way that you don't expect, care for, or affirm, we'll likely be at a place where we have a faith crisis. So think about this. Next week, right, sandwiched in these three faith accounts, everybody believes in something. We talked about that last week. Today we talked about how every person uh, in our belief, we need to be mindful of what it is we're believing in. We need to make sure for the Christian that we have a sort of a pure and true faith. And next week, we'll look at a faith that starts out somewhat irrational, but actually becomes very real. In other words, the father goes to Jesus wanting a transaction. He wants him to do something. But in the process, he actually has faith, like real faith. So hear me when I say this. Next week, we'll look at a passage that, that looks at another angle of this. But if today you're sitting in this room and you're in a challenging place for faith, if you're saying, well, I don't have faith at all, or I'm questioning faith, or maybe you've realized that God has been somewhat transactional before you, I want you to know that there's hope in this. There is an immeasurable amount of grace in this. The, the aim of these messages in the New Testament is not to point out a place where we struggle as people and then to leave us there. The story of the gospel is that God sees these things and is constantly making a way to help us become more like Christ in them. And so this is what I want you to think about as we move to the communion table. How preposterous this idea is that we would create God in our own image, create Jesus in our own image, and then try to, try to ask him to function that way. We are so short-selling the reality of who Jesus is for us. If you really see Jesus for who he is, then it is an utter, ex it's an utter exercise in, in futility and arrogance. It is absolutely arrogant and futile for us to try to think that we can imagine something better than that. If you know who Jesus is, we cannot dream up something better. We cannot make up something better. We cannot do anything to make him better. Think about this. We believe Jesus is God and the Son of God. 
We believe he is our creator. We believe that he became flesh and that he chose to love and dwell amongst us. For the very sin of disbelief we're reading about in this passage, he is addressing a sin issue, but he is there doing it, helping people to see and understand the correction. He chooses to love us, much like he chose to love the Galileans when they were very far from God. His miracles, every single one of them, has this, 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 these abilities that he can do, these things he can do for us. They were never meant to be an end in and of themselves. They were truly meant to be signposts leading us to a greater place, a greater city, the city of God. There is a city beyond the sign, and that is deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a place where Jesus, because of his spilled blood on the cross, the very same blood we're about to talk about here in a minute, we can be a part of this city. We can be a part of the kingdom of God. Those of us who are already in Christ, we can now call that home. You see, to just be thankful for the sign short sells the real beauty, the real truth of what Jesus has done. And the faith problem we're looking at today, it's just preposterous. It's an exercise in arrogance because we do not take Jesus for who he says he is. And it's really hard to find a more benevolent, loving, caring God. It's really hard to find a person who, who goes to the cross and dies for our sin, having had no guilt in any of it. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. How can we make something up better than that? The answer is we shouldn't, but we do. And that's where we have something to think about this morning. So as we move to the communion table, I want you to consider this. Think about your faith. Think about Jesus for who he is. Is your faith based on taking God on his terms? Or are you subversively asking God to follow you on, on your terms? It's important to answer this question. If you need help in answering this question, let us know that. Because the first sign, the first evidence of this, will lead you to a genuine knowledge of God's goodness and grace in Jesus. If you take Jesus at his word, that's what the Father does next week, then what happens is you see Jesus, and you start, you start to tap into those amazing relational benefits that he provides you, his goodness, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his eternal presence. That is a great place to be. However, if the latter is how you see God, then it is a common but, it's, but really conditional belief and what that will do is rob you of the true joy of Jesus. You'll never experience Jesus, like Paul says in Ephesians. You'll never experience the fullness of Christ the way God desires us to know his son. And so as we move to the table, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the kind of faith you have in him? Be honest with God this morning. And then ask yourself, what is it you will do about it when you leave this place?